I'm going to introduce for you our, uh, our ministry spotlight for the morning. This is Chris Wilson. Why don't y'all give her a hand while she comes up? She is, uh, she's with the Johnston Partnership, the Jump Mentoring Program. I'll let her tell you all about that. But I was privileged to be able to start in this program this last week. I had, uh, I'm a, a mentor for this program. And so what you do is you meet with a, a student from Johnston Community Schools, and it was awesome. I just, my eyes were open this week as I met with my student, and you just share life together, and you get to mentor this kid. It's a great time. So Chris Wilson is here, and she's going to share with you this opportunity. Thanks for coming. Well, thank you for having me today and um, allowing me to share with you a little bit about what I do and um, what we're hoping to do for the Johnston students um, in the next school year. I really spent a lot of time reflecting um, on what I might say to you today, and I prayed about it, and I talked to Nick, and I talked to my um, small group um, from my church, and, you know, mentoring is never mentioned in the Bible. Um, you can't find that word in the Bible, but um, as I reflected on it, I decided, you know what, Jesus really was the ultimate mentor for us because he led by example, and that's really all that mentoring is. It's providing an example um, for our young people, an example that they can follow, um, a role model. Really, it's just building a relationship that's a trusting relationship, um, someone that can listen to a kiddo in the schools. And really, we hope it enriches the lives of both the mentor and the mentee. And I coordinate the program, but I'm also a mentor. Um, and I've went through one cycle already. I started with an 11-year-old, and she graduated a few years ago. Um, she's married now and has a life of her own. Um, and I will tell you that it enriched my life like you wouldn't believe. Um, and I know that I'm here asking you to participate in a mission that's probably a little different from other missions you might be involved with because it's not a way that you can directly share your faith because we are based in the schools. And so it's a little different. But I will tell you that I ask the Holy Spirit to guide me every time I'm going to meet with my mentor. I asked for guidance before I came here today. And I can't pray with my students, but I guarantee you that I'm praying for them every single day. So I know the ministry is a little bit different, or the mission that I'm asking you to be involved with is a little different, but next year I need 30 new mentors. And this year we didn't hit our target. So I had kids coming in asking me for mentors, and I couldn't make that happen for them. And so I'm reaching out to see if I can start out the year. I would like to start out the year with 10 mentors who are ready to go. We have a little bit of a process and that I have to do background screens and um, some interviews and uh, references and things like that just to keep the kids safe. Um, and that takes a little bit of time. So what I'm going to try to do is do that over the summer so that we start out the school year with 10 mentors ready to go. And I'd really like to challenge Cornerstone and see if five of those mentors could come from you. Um, there's lots of opportunities to be a mentor. You can do it just, you know, by yourself, a one-on-one -on -one mentor, or you can work as a couple. So if a husband and wife would like to mentor a student, you know, you can work um, that way too. So lots of different ways um, to be a mentor. I, I'll be out there at the table, and I can give you more information about how that works. But I'm going to tell you a little bit about our program first, just so you have an understanding of what you might be getting yourself into if you pick up one of my application packets out there. We usually start mentoring when students are in grades about five through seven. Um, and our program is based on a developmental mentoring model. And what that means is we're not prescriptive in that we don't say, well, this kiddo needs help with math, and so will you come in and help them with math, and then when their math scores get up, then you're out of here. That's not the way this really works. Um, we're looking for people who can develop a relationship, a long-term relationship with a student, and really give them a role model. Um, and when Nick and I were talking a little bit, um, he shared the words of the Apostle Paul with me, and it, it just really clicked. I went, oh, yeah, that's totally it. Um, Paul tells us, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. And that's exactly what this is. It's just creating a role model for students. doesn't mean that they don't have other role models in their life. It just means that you're just the role model just for them. And that makes a big difference to them. You know, I've had students say to me, well, Mrs. Wilson, you have to like me, you get paid to. Well, I don't have to like them. Um, <laughs> some days I don't like them all the time. Um, but they don't actually pay me to like them. But they don't get that concept. So the fact that you would be coming in and volunteering really matters. 
that makes the difference to them because you don't have to be there. You're not paid to be there. You're not paid to like them. You keep coming back every week because you do like them um, because they're important to you. And that makes a difference for a student. They definitely recognize that. Um, what we do is um, we match based on strengths. So I don't want you to feel like, well, you're just going to give me this student out of nowhere. How am I going to make a connection? It's not it at all. We take time and interview you. You'd spend time with one of our staff members through the interview process. We get to know you, get to know what your strengths are, what your hobbies are, what you like. And then we try to find a student that is a good match for you. Um, a student who needs kind of what you have to offer, a student who might be interested in some of the th same things that um, you're interested in, so that you're not just sitting across the table from them going, oh, well, what are we going to do next? Plus, we have lots of fun stuff. Um, we have kitchens in our mentoring room, so lots of people cook. Sometimes they teach their students to do things like basic life skills like ironing. Um, we have a lot of games. We have a lot of activities, a lot of crafts. Um, I <laughs> bought a V8 model engine the other day. I have a, a student that's putting that together with their mentor. So really, we're kind of endless opportunities for things to keep you doing. We know middle schoolers, and we do know that sitting across from them and talking is not always the easiest. Busy hands usually make more talkative middle schoolers. So we provide the materials to keep that going. We have staff members, so you're never out on your own. There's three of us that work with the mentoring program in the Johnson School, so we're always going to be there for you. Um, and what we try to do is ask for a one-year commitment. And then after that one year, um, you can decide if you want to continue or not. The unique thing about our program that's kind of different than other programs is no matter how much I think a kiddo needs mentoring, I can't make them be a part of the program. Their teacher can't make them. Their parents can't make them. No one can make them be a part of the mentoring program. They have to want it. They have to sign on. There's a spot in all the paperwork where they sign on saying, yes, I want a mentor in my life. I want to make some positive changes, and I think a mentor would help me make those positive changes. So I think that's a little unique in that they have as much power as anybody else um, has in developing the relationship. What I find is once a student's involved in mentoring, they usually don't want to give it up. Sometimes as they get older, it doesn't um, come as easily because their schedules get really busy, and so they can't always make that commitment to that one you know, time a week. So it might move to just visiting them monthly um, instead of weekly. But what we find is our average relationship lasts for over four years, and we've only been doing this for, since 2004. We also find that if a student sticks with their mentor through their sophomore year of high school, they graduate from high school. We have yet to knock on wood somewhere, please, because graduation's coming up. But we have yet to um, have a student who was involved in the program who didn't graduate from high school. Um, so that's pretty powerful, um, pretty powerful statistic, I think. Um, you know, these students come from all walks of life. They go right here to this school. They go to all our schools. They live in Johnston. They live in Urbandale. They live in Des Moines. Um, the one thing they have in common is they want to make a positive change in their life with a mentor. This doesn't mean that their life is horrible. Some of you might come to me if you mentor and say, well, why are they in the program? I don't understand. And we just have to say, well, you're just going to have to trust me. There's something that they needed, an extra adult in their life. Maybe they have a sibling that takes up a lot of their parents' time, or maybe they've lost an important adult in their life. There's something going on that they need a significant adult in their life. Maybe they're just really afraid from going from fifth grade to the big sixth grade, seventh grade building. And so we provide that little bit of extra support for them, that kind of having a touch, you know, a touchstone, a base for them to come to. It's lots of different things. But what I want to share with you is these aren't the students who necessarily need involvement from juvenile court or have a mental illness that's untreated or something like that. These are kids who are kind of, if you think about a slide, these are kids who are up on top of the slide, and they're thinking about making some choices, and we don't want to make those choices that will end them at the bottom of the slide. We want to keep them making good choices and healthy choices, and we want to keep them feeling supported and feeling good about themselves, even through those tough middle school years. Um, if you say to yourself, wow, this sounds great, but I can't mentor. I can't be here an hour a week. I work in Des Moines, or um, you know, my life just doesn't um, allow for that right now. I also have a handout went out at the table that talks about, um, I don't know, did you have guys have small groups here? 
Yes, very good. Um, where maybe your small group could do something to get involved with the students. Um, so I have some ideas for other ways that you can get involved with our program. Um, we're a unique collaboration. We are part of the school district, and we're also part of the Partnership for a Healthy Community, which runs like the food pantry and the clothes closet. Those two groups came together to do this uh, mentoring program. So if you say, well, I can't do mentoring, no worries, I have plenty of volunteer opportunities. So um, I can help you connect with something else too. Um, if you would like to, I have more information out there. So I wanna say thank you for inviting me and ask you to think about becoming involved. I would love to get five people to pick up applications after the service today. Um, and importantly, I would like you to pray for us and pray for our students in hopes that um, we can meet our goal of 30 new mentors next year and helping as many students as we possibly can. And for my um, nine that are approaching graduation. Keep our fingers crossed, we got a week to go. Thank you very much. Awesome, thank you Chris for coming. Again, it would be an awesome thing to be part of. I've done it one week and it was very fun. Um, it was great. And uh, it'd just be a, a good opportunity to make those outside relationships, right? So stop by that table uh, when you're done there. And the band's gonna come back up and I just want to pray for us as we continue. God, I pray that you would move um, in at least five, five hearts here this morning to become mentors. Um, God, that we can partner with, with Johnston to, to have relationship with these students. And uh, God, I just pray now as we continue to worship you, um, that your name is lifted up and that you are worthy, God that you are worth everything that we could say or do this morning. And so we give you our praise. As we give back to you from what you've given to us, may we give with cheerful hearts, God, um, knowing that everything is yours and we can never outgive you. Um, so thank you, God, for who you are to us as we worship you in Jesus' name. Great to see everyone here today. Uh, before we start, I just want to uh, make you aware of a, a, a couple announcements. Uh, one is a really exciting blessing that uh, Mark and Jessalyn Klein welcomed a healthy baby girl, uh, Kayla Klein. Uh, she arrived on Friday, so that is that's really exciting, and um, we are grateful for for the blessing of children. Uh, a second announcement has to do with. Uh, the elders have been praying and thinking about uh, adding some new uh, guys to our leadership teams, and I want to make you aware of that. Um, Kyle Clarkson uh, and Bob Short, we would uh, ask you to, to pray and um, give us input on uh, having them serve as elders. Uh, we're thankful for their willingness to, to uh, be considered for this and to, to serve in this capacity. So. Uh, this isn't something that we take lightly, so we ask you guys as a congregation to pray for these guys, uh, to lift them up, to ask us if you have any questions or have any input on that. And then uh, for our deacon team, um, Brent um, um, McLaren ha and Kevin Cyberling have both uh, expressed a willingness to, to be used to, to serve on that team. Uh, so again, we're thankful for for men that are willing to use their gifts and to serve. And so we ask you guys to, to lift them up in prayer and to uh, be praying for those uh, changes. Um, also, uh, a third thing, we, we recently, at the beginning of this month, had a chance for, for new members to attend a class to find out more about Cornerstone, our beliefs and practices, and we're excited to have those that could join us for that. Uh, some that wanted to make it weren't able to make it, so Hopefully the beginning of June, possibly June 2nd and June 9th, um, but we'll, we'll get those dates nailed down for sure. But if you are interested in, in finding out more about Cornerstone, if you're new, you could be considering membership or a recent member who just hasn't had a chance to go through this. Uh, we welcome you to join us. You, you can come and talk to me. So go ahead and turn your Bibles to John chapter 4. John chapter 4. Uh, and before we... Before we read, let's, uh, let's just go to the Lord in prayer. Father, your word is truth. Your word shows us Jesus. 
your word reveals your will to us. And we're grateful for a chance to open your word together this morning. Lord, may you use it to bring glory and honor to you. May you stir our hearts to appreciate you more, to understand you more, um, stir up a desire to follow you and to be used by you. We just commit our time in Jesus' name. Amen. Matthew chapter 4. Or sorry, John. I said, I said Matthew. Someone's correcting me there. I feel a little discombobulated. Did you ever, you ever remember one of those mornings where your, your children are just all over the map, for those of you with kids, and, and you, you feel like you're being a referee and uh, um, a servant and all these things, and sometimes not so nice, and then all these things are happening, and then you show up to church and you're like, ah, how's everyone doing, you know? So just so you know where I'm coming from, John chapter 4, and uh, to set the context, just to, to help us remember what's been going on so far, um, Jesus and his followers have, are making a transition. They're, they have spent a, a time of, there's been a time of ministry down in, the, in Judea. That's the area around Jerusalem. And then they, it, says, it says in John chapter uh, 2 that they, they had been baptizing disciples there. And they, people have been coming to know Jesus. And now they're, they're transitioning um, northward. So they passed through uh, Samaria, as Kyle talked about last week, and you had the encounter with the, the woman at the well. And now we are, we are picking up from there, and Jesus, again, is transitioning in his ministry to a new area. So John chapter 4, starting in verse 43. After two days, Jesus departed for Galilee. For Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. So he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And at Capernaum there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The official said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, Go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them about the hour when he began to get better, and they said to him, Yesterday, at the seventh hour, the fever left him. The father knew that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, Your son will live. And he himself believed and all his household. And this was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. Now remember, the book of John is all about believing in Jesus. Right off the bat, John tells us that in the first chapter. In chapter 1, verse 11, he says, He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And so, we see this pattern developing in John, where there's a story, and then there's belief. There's a narrative, and then there's belief. You think of, you think of the, the uh, encounter with Philip and Nathaniel, and, and Jesus said, you know, I, I, I saw you under, under the fig tree. And Philip, he, he, he comes to believe in Jesus. Or sorry, Nathaniel comes to believe in Jesus. And then you see the conversation with Nicodemus. And it doesn't tell us what Nicodemus' response is to this, but later in the book we find that he becomes a follower of Jesus. But Jesus, throughout this time, is, sent, is trying to tell us and show us what does it mean to believe in Jesus? And then last week, this, this encounter with the woman at the well. Jesus meets her and he talks to her. And at the end, you see the result of that. The woman believed in Jesus. And so all of these narratives, all of these stories, are teaching us aspects of belief. You say, what does it mean to believe in Jesus? 
Well, John is showing us, and he's staying on task. He's not getting sidetracked. He's not getting distracted. He is showing us what it means to believe in Jesus. And I think that there's three aspects of that uh, that I want to bring out, three aspects of what belief in Jesus means uh, that I want to talk about uh, this morning. So, starting in verse 46. So he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And at Capernaum, there was an official whose son was ill. Okay, so a little geography. This is a map. Um, the top is Galilee in the, in the area. It's a little hard to see the coloring. But down here in the, in the green, you can see Samaria. And the blue arrow is kind of tracing the, the route of Jesus and his disciples as they travel up to the city called Cana. So, this man, this official, comes from Capernaum. See the red arrow from Capernaum to Cana. Now, he had, he had somehow, word had reached Capernaum. Remember, Jesus had only done one sign in Galilee up to this point. He had turned the water into wine, and that happened at the wedding in Cana. Somehow, this man in Capernaum had heard news of this. And Capernaum was about a 20-mile uh, distance, so nothing, nothing for us in our vehicles, but a good, a good solid day's journey back in that time. And, and something to, to, to see about this guy, it calls him an official. Well, what does that mean, official? Well, you, you read, and in, in, in most of the, the commentaries point out that the most likely thing is that this, this guy was an official for King Herod. He was the only king in, in, in that region. And this is the same Herod that put John the Baptist in prison, where John was right at this moment. So this official, this, I want you to, to picture someone who is an important man, someone who, who has money, who has power, who has influence, and his son was ill. Now, anyone that's a parent can relate to that feeling of helplessness if you have a child that is ill. You will do anything to try to relieve that suffering, to try to help that child. But it must have been a little bit humbling for this important man, this official, this guy who had power and influence and privilege, to, to pack up and, and walk 20 miles to see someone who was really just a lowly carpenter and to come and to ask for his help. So I want you to kind of put yourself in that frame of mind that, and what would drive this, this important man to kind of humble himself and come ask this obscure carpenter for help? So continue in verse 47. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So not only was his son sick, he, he, he was going to die any day, any time. This, is, this was a desperate situation. And, and so he, he, think about what he's asking Jesus to do now. He's saying, Jesus, I want you, I know we're in Cana, I live in Capernaum, I want you to travel with me 20 miles because my, my son, he might not make it another day. This is urgent. I need you to come now. And the first thing I want us to, to kind of recognize about believing in Jesus is that it starts with a need. It starts with need. And I want us to think about this idea that God uses our needs. God uses our trials to draw us to himself. He uses the circumstances and the difficulties of our life to bring us closer to himself. In Mark 2, Mark 2.17, Jesus said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. You know, if you're someone who has it all together, if you're someone who is healthy and rich and prosperous, chances are you're not going to go to Jesus for help. But if you're someone who has a need, who has some problem in your life, that you know there is no other solution, there is no other way that this need is going to get fulfilled unless God, unless God takes care of it. Jesus uses need, our, our issues, our problems, to draw us to himself. In fact, I'd go so far as to say 
that you cannot come to faith in Jesus unless you first see your need. And this was the message that Jesus, when he came into Galilee in Mark, it tells us that his message was repent and believe the gospel. Well, you can't repent unless you see your problem. You can't repent unless you see your need. So this issue of need is critical. I also reminded of the, of the time where Jesus um, told a story about the Pharisee and the tax collector. He said, two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you I am not like the other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. You know, each of us probably has some circumstance in our life, some need. Some of us have some huge, heavy, pressing needs today. Some of us are just dealing with the, the day-to-day problems that are a part of life. And, and our, our reaction to those is to say, God, why is this happening? Why is this circumstance coming to my life? I think this official probably wondered, why is my son sick and at the point of death? But you know what? That official would not have walked those 20 miles to see Jesus that day unless his son was not at the point of death. And one of the interesting things about suffering and need is it is one of the biggest reasons why people don't come to God, too. Think about that. They say, I, how can I believe in a God that allows suffering in this world? How can I put my faith in a God who is all-powerful, who could do anything, the God who has created the world, how can I put my faith in a God who is that powerful and yet allows suffering? So I want us to, this is a common objection. I, I want to just share maybe three or, or four things that are helpful to keep in mind if you talk to someone and they bring this up. And the first thing to remember is that suffering, death, pain is not a part of God's original creation. You look in the garden and God looked at the world that he created and he said, it is good. There was nothing that was not good. There was no death. There was no suffering. There was no sickness. God created this world to be perfect. But sin Sin brought suffering. Sin brought death into the world. Another thing to keep in mind is that God has purposes that we are not able to see. God has plans that we are not aware of. And we're going to see that in this story, that God has purposes in mind that this man was not aware of when his son got sick. And the third is that there is coming a day in the future that we look forward to. John describes later in Revelation, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain, for the former things have passed away. You, know, you could say, I'm not going to believe in God because of all the suffering in the world. But well, you know what? It still leaves you with the suffering. And you still have to deal with that somehow. But we who know our Creator, who know our God, can take hope in the middle of pain, in the middle of suffering, that we have a God who is in control and who sees our suffering. You know, Jesus saw the need that this man had. We do not have a Savior who can't sympathize with us. We don't have a Savior who is unable to relate to us. So need. Need is a crucial part of believing in Jesus. Let's continue in John 4, John 4, 48. Jesus said to him, Unless you people see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Now, there's something interesting about this verse that it doesn't come out in every English translation, translation, and so you see the people in brackets. I think NIV translates it that way. Now, English, the, the word you, if I say I'm, I'm giving a gift to you, you don't know that if I'm talking to one person or to a whole group of people. Now, in the original language, the, the, uh, the word, there's a different word for you singular and you plural. And so Jesus here is using the word for plural. It's interesting, he says to him, he's talking to the man, but then he brings everyone else into it. Unless you people, unless all of you, see signs and wonders, you will not believe. So Jesus is talking about this, 
this uh, concept of belief again. Surprise, John is bringing us back to this idea of belief. And Jesus is making a kind of a, on the face of it, kind of a, a shocking or, or surprising statement. Because um, when you consider, what is, what is the point of the miracles? What is the point of the signs that Jesus did? Well, John tells us later in his book, verse that we've been reading many times, that now Jesus did many other signs, miracles, in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that my, by believing you may have life in his name. The purpose of the miracles, the purpose of the signs, was to bring belief. So why does Jesus say, unless you see signs and miracles, you will not believe? Well, I think that there's a, a clue earlier in John, John 4, 45. It says, when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. So, so John is saying this group of people, this was not their first encounter with Jesus. And you have to go back to John chapter 2 to get a little more detail on this. So, so if you have your Bible, turn, turn back to John chapter 2. And this was after the incident at the temple when Jesus had, had driven out the, the people that were selling and, and, and disrespecting the temple. In John 2.23, it says, Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. I mean, that's fine. That sounds good. That's exciting, right? But look at the next verse. Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. There was something about this belief. There was something about this excitement that was phony, that was not true, that was not the kind of belief that Jesus was after. You never hear this kind of language in the Bible if, if of true genuine, real believers that put their faith in Jesus, Jesus does not turn away from that. And yet, in John chapter 2, it says, Jesus did not entrust himself to them, for he knew what was in the heart. See, Jesus saw beyond the outward excitement and the outward clamor, he saw into their heart. He said, this is not the kind of belief that I'm after. And so when the same crowd, the same group of people shows up, he says, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. So what is he saying here? What is he really getting at? Well, look in Luke chapter 29. This is not an uncommon occurrence. Jesus said this sort of thing uh, several times in several places throughout the gospel. Luke, Luke 11, 29. When the crowds were increasing, he began to say, This generation is an evil generation. It seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. This is an evil generation. It's not going to have a sign. The only sign that it's going to have is the sign of Jonah. And then look what he says down in verse 32. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. What is he getting after here? What, is he, what does he really want? You know, the signs, if they're supposed to point us to belief, then why is Jesus coming along and blaming them? Why is he saying, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe? Well, in this, in this section in Luke, what is the problem? He said, why are they an evil and adulterous generation? Well, he's comparing them to Nineveh. Now, what happened to Nineveh? Jonah came to Nineveh, and he said, repent. Okay? His message was simple. Repent. God's going to destroy you. Did Jonah, did Jonah do any miracles? Did Jonah do any signs? 
in the city of Nineveh? No. But it says, look at what it says. They repented at the preaching of Jonah. And where is Jesus just coming from? He is just coming from Samaria, where he had this, this uh, revival breakout. And in John 4, 440, it says, When the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them. And he stayed there two days. And in verse 41, John 4:41, many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. So you had this group of Samaritans who, who, who are despised, who are the enemies of the Jews, that it didn't say that Jesus did any signs and wonders there. It said they heard the word and they believed. And that's what Jesus was after. He wanted people to respond to what to his message. Now the signs were great. The signs were there to point people to the identity of Jesus. They were there to point people to the person of Jesus, to the message of Jesus. But these people had already seen signs. Remember that. They saw signs and they had an outward show of belief. But what happens when they show up again? They're all clamoring around Jesus. It doesn't tell you all the background chatter, but he saw into their hearts. And were they, here to, were they there to see Jesus? Were they he, there to hear a word from Jesus? No, they were there to see a miracle. They were there to see a show. And Jesus says, I don't want that. That is not the kind of belief that I am after. Now, when I was in high school, I went to France, and, and we, we were able to, to, to walk through the, the, uh, the Louvre in, in, in Paris. And there are all these amazing um, paintings there. Now, can you imagine if, if I walked up to the Mona Lisa, and I got out my, my camera, and, and I, I was, I was going to start looking at it, and I just became preoccupied with the frame. Man, this is an awesome frame, you know. It's, it's symmetrical. It's got this amazing uh, designs around it, or, or whatever it might be. Or, or even just start looking around the museum. Man, look at those, you know, look at those structures. And I, that would be crazy, right? And, but, and yet, that is the kind of thing that these people were doing. You know, they wanted the signs, they wanted the miracles, they wanted the wonders. But Jesus wanted them to want him. And I think. What is Jesus getting after here? He's getting after the motive. The motive for the belief. You know, Jesus will not be a means to our ends. Jesus will not be a way for us just to get what we want. So some people come to Jesus and they say, I want to come to Jesus because I want to be wealthy. I want to come to Jesus because I want to be healthy. I want to come to Jesus because he's going to take all the problems out of my life but they don't really want Jesus. They don't really want him. And he is after faith. He is after people that want Jesus for who he is. Um, you know, imagine that, imagine that you're a rich person and, and maybe you invite people over to your house from time to time. Well, what if the people always showed up and they were excited to, to be there and, and they just wanted to partake of all the, the wonderful food and hors d'oeuvres and all that kind of stuff? but they could care less about getting to know you as a person. I think that's a little bit maybe how Jesus felt when these people who, who had had this outward show of belief show up again. They've already seen signs. They have enough to believe. They have enough to know who he is. But they show up and they want more. They want more. That is not the belief that Jesus is after. The kind of belief that he's after is, is seeking him for who he is. And you know, I think it's good to examine our hearts from time to time and say, do I want Jesus because of the gifts that he brings? Do I want Jesus because of the blessings that he brings? Or do I want him because of who he is? You know, if we were to fill in the blank, unless I see what? I will not believe. There may be some in this room who don't believe. And they say, unless I see this, I will not believe. No, Jesus, that's not the kind of faith that he wants. 
And the miracles and the signs and all these things are just there to point us to Jesus, to point us to who he is and his person, and to see that man and just to be drawn to him, be drawn to the person who would live this life. Well, what happened? Verse 49, the official said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. I want you to hear just the the desperation in that. You know, Jesus, I need you to come. I know that that you're, you're talking about signs and wonders and all this, but I need my son to live. And you know what? This is the neat thing about Jesus. Jesus did not turn away from those who had real needs and to those who were desperate for him. He doesn't turn away from those people. He might turn away from the people who want the show, the people who want the sign, but he does not turn away from those with real needs. So isn't that comforting to us that when we feel like there's nowhere else we can turn, when we have no other way out, that we can turn to Jesus, that we can find help, that we can find a man who can sympathize with us. And so, Jesus says in verse 50, Go, your son will live. Now, I also want to point out that what did, what did the man ask Jesus to do? He said, Jesus, I need you to come with me. I need you to, to stand by my son and, and pray over him and all these things. And Jesus, isn't it neat how sometimes he doesn't answer our prayers the way we expect them to? He says, just go. Your son will live. He didn't need to walk 20 miles. He said, go, your son will live. What does it say? It says, the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. The man believed the word. I also think it's, it's, it's pretty amazing that all these people showed up to see a miracle. And Jesus did a miracle, but they didn't get to see it. Isn't that cool? The man with the need was the man that was helped. The people that were there for everything else. It doesn't say if Jesus did any other miracles that day, but I, I kind of think that, that that was it. I kind of think that Jesus said, I'm going I'm to heal the, the one who needs to be healed. And everyone else is going to go away disappointed. Listen to the rest of the story. It gets better. As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. And so he asked them the hour when he began to get better. And they said to him, Yesterday, at the seventh hour, the fever left him. You know, he comes. I don't know what his expectation was, but he, he's coming home, and, and the servants come out. The servants are excited. They come out to meet him. And, and, he, and he says, you know, well, when did he get better? Well, yesterday, the seventh hour. And he knew that was the moment that Jesus said, your son will live. And I think he, I think it, it, says, it says in verse 50 that he had believed the word that Jesus had spoken. I don't know what he believed about that word. Maybe he thought, okay, he's on the road to recovery. Because he knew this guy was on, at the point of death. Maybe he believed, my son is, is going to get better, but it's going to take some time. So he gets home. Imagine his just amazement that at the moment that Jesus spoke the words, the fever left. Now, isn't that just, doesn't that just speak to the power of Jesus? And you know, and we still believe in that Jesus today. We still believe that Jesus can do mighty things, and we want to pray for those things. And this, a passage like this should give us confidence and boldness to go to Jesus, to go to the throne of grace, and to ask for him to do immeasurably more than all that we can think or ask. And listen listen what happens in verse 54. Or sorry. Verse 53. The father knew that was the hour that Jesus had said to him, your son will live. And he himself believed and all his household. Wait, hadn't he already believed the word of Jesus? Hadn't he already 
trusted in what Jesus was going to do? Well, one thing about faith and about belief is that Jesus wants to increase it. Wherever we're at, Jesus wants that faith to grow. And so this man had a measure of faith, a certain amount of faith, and yet when he came home and he found out how even more amazing this, this was than he had even expected, it says he believed. And not only he, but his whole household. Faith multiplies. It increases. And so we're all here today. We all have some kind of need that Jesus wants us to bring to him. That Jesus wants to use to draw us close to himself. And when we do that, when we trust in Jesus, then we find that he's faithful. And what does it do? It increases our faith. And so we trust him for something else, and it increases our faith. And it is a growth, and it is a, an increase of faith. Isn't that amazing to think that this man that walked those 20 miles to see Jesus that day, he thought he was seeking after Jesus. Jesus knew the whole time. Jesus knew this man was coming to him, and he knew what he was going to do. And right now, Jesus, Jesus wants to, wherever you're at, whatever kind of faith you have, if you've never trusted in Christ, Jesus says, come to me. Bring that need to me. I'll fill it. Fill the deepest needs of your heart. And I want to increase your faith. And some of us have, have known Jesus for many years. And yet, sometimes things are going well. It's easy to stop trusting Jesus when things are going well. Jesus says, come back to me. He wants our cares. He wants our burdens. Because we still have them. We just aren't always taking them to him. What does Peter say? Cast all your cares on him, for he cares for you. A couple of verses that that kind of illustrate that. 2 Corinthians 5, 7, we walk by faith, not by sight. Hebrews 11, 1, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the convictions of things not seen. The opposite of, of faith is seen. And we don't get to see everything right now. And that's why Jesus wants us to use faith, because he is real, he is the creator, he is the one who fills our needs, and he wants us to trust in that. You know, the man that day, he didn't get to see the miracle, but he trusted that Jesus was going to work. He trusted that Jesus was going to make his son well. And Jesus was illustrating to us these things about what it means to believe in Jesus. Um, you know, we're going to go into to a time of, of communion. And... Our need drives us to believe. And our motive for belief is who Jesus is, not the gifts he gives. And he'll increase that faith if we go to him in genuine faith. I couldn't help but thinking about, you know, this, this son, he was going to die someday still, but Jesus healed him. But we're here today to, to remember that Jesus is a son who by rights should have never died. And yet he came and went to a cross willingly so that we could be healed. Isn't that a reversal? Isn't that a, a reason to praise him today? And to recognize that, man, what a Savior we have. The one that should have never experienced sickness. The one that should have never experienced any pain. He joined our suffering. You know, and that's the biggest reason why if someone says to you, I can't believe in a God who allows bad things to happen to good people. We point to Jesus and we say, the worst thing happened to the only perfect person. And so today we're here to, to take the bread and to take the cup. And if you know Jesus, you take those and you, and you say, Jesus, I want to trust in you. I want you to increase my belief. I thank you that you're my Savior. Let's pray.
Father, we believe, but help our unbelief. We have, we have deep needs, deep issues, deep problems in our lives. God, I, I, I want to pray for, for those in this room right now that are hurting. And we don't want to give easy answers. We don't want to say that that suffering isn't hard. But we want to draw near to you, God. We want to put our faith and our hope and our trust in the promises that will last longer than our lifetime on this earth. So help us with that today, God. Help us see the things that are really real, to put our faith in the unchanging person of Jesus, the one who came to, to heal and to, and to make us whole all the way down to the very deepest parts of our heart, to wash away our sins. Thank you for the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. As we remember you with the bread and the cup, God, draw us back, expose our, our selfishness and our sin and our self-reliance, and draw us back to yourself. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.